Father God, we just want to thank you that uh, we have an opportunity to gather in this space today, that we can come together as believers uh, to worship you. God, we just pray that, that you continue to help us uh, catch your vision for the lost, or that, that every single person is valuable to you and you'd want to draw all of us near to you. So Lord, we just pray that you put a fire in our hearts to care for people who, who need to find their way back into the fullness of life that you have to offer. Lord, give us a heart for, for mission in that way, to reach out to people who are close to us, whether it be our neighbors, friends, colleagues, brothers-in-law, sisters, whatever it might be, or people who are far away uh, with our missionaries that are across the world. God, we pray that ultimately that we can continue to show by our actions and by our, the way that we speak and love each other uh, that the life that we have with you is good and that we want other people to join us in it. God, I want to pray specifically this morning for the message that as we dive into one of the one of the more difficult parts of Scripture this morning that you are here in a, in, in a really big and special way. God, I pray that, that the words that we read, that we hear what you spoke long ago, speak to each of us wherever we are. That we may know that you love each of us and are, like we've been praying all morning, that you draw us near to yourself. Amen. <clears throat> It's been a long time. I'm just going to admit it right off the beginning that, I, I, that since I've been as nervous about a message as I am about this one this morning. Um, I've loved our journey through Matthew so far. I hope you have too. <clears throat> Sorry. And uh, when we committed to doing Matthew uh, at, at the end of last year, we committed to doing a year in Matthew, uh, we, we knew that, that there were going to be weeks like this week where, where we're, we're committed to working through it straight through. Uh, and when you do that, you're going to come to some really difficult parts, and that's where we are this morning. I both love it and I hate it. I love that we, we can't avoid it because if we're going to tackle the scripture in order, we have to. Uh, but at the same time, it creates really difficult messages, and, and that's what we're going to see. Uh, because this week, uh, we're going to tackle a topic that causes a lot of people pain. Today, because today we're going to be talking about divorce. Now, I want to say just a few things before we get started because it's important. Like we said, when we committed to doing Matthew, we committed to not skipping these kinds of hard conversations, and we're going to have more as we continue through the book. Jesus talks about it, and so we are too. But second, you might be wondering why we're talking about divorce rather than the other things that we looked at at the list last week. Why are we not talking about oaths or an eye for an eye or adultery, though that will be part of what we're going to talk about today. <clears throat> and there are a couple reasons for that. First, is my guess is you've probably heard more sermons on those other things more often because they're easier to tackle. Second, though, is that Jesus actually loops back around to divorce later on. We're going to be pulling forward Matthew 19. So Matthew 19, Jesus deals with it again. And so we thought this was an important one to tackle. It's also one that's been misunderstood a lot in church culture and has probably caused a lot more pain than other teachings have. And so we wanted to deal with it this morning. And finally, like I said, it's a discussion that I'm really nervous about. Not because I'm afraid of what Jesus has to say, I'm not, but because all of us come into the discussion from a different place this morning. Some of you grew up in a household where your parents were together, you didn't experience divorce, you're in a happy marriage now, and so that's not something uh, that's, or you're not married at all, and so the topic doesn't really feel relevant to you. Some of you are in that space this morning. Others of you grew up in a house that was more volatile where your parents were, were, were divorced, and that was a really hard thing for you. That's my story. That's what I lived through. 
Some of you grew up in a house where it was toxic, but your parents stayed together because they felt like the church would have rejected them outright. And as a result, that caused a whole other set of, set of pains. Some of you are here this morning and you're married and things are really hard right now. You're not sure if you're going to make it and you're nervous about what I'm going to say today. Some of you come into this space this morning divorced already. Some of you came into this, this space this morning divorced and you didn't want to be and so that's another set of pain that you bring to it. Others of you come divorced and know that it was the thing that saved your life. And I'm sure we could go on and on and on, but all of us come to this topic from a different perspective, and that's what makes it so difficult. It's what makes me nervous. Because I'm going to do my best to be as sensitive to all of those perspectives as I can be. Now, normally in a sermon, if I were to, to make a flippant comment or tell a bad joke, we would all just roll your eyes at me and we'd move on, right? It happens often. I get it. It's okay. Today, though, if I do that in the wrong spot, I could hurt somebody really badly, and I desperately do not want to do that. If I do it, it's an accident, and I'm apologizing on the front side, and please come talk to me about it, because it's not my intention at all. That's the big caveat before we get started. There's a lot of things, but I think it was necessary. All right, so you ready? I don't know if I am, but we're going to go anyway, because otherwise I don't know what else to do. So here we go. So before we can actually dive into the scripture we're going to look at today, it's really, really important to know where we've been before we can know where we're going. We've been working through the book of Matthew, and, and, and we've talked about some really important points that Jesus has made as he leads into what we've been calling the Sermon on the Mount and as he works through the Sermon on the Mount itself. Remember, we start, Jesus starts his preaching career in Matthew with, with a phrase that kind of helps us understand the rest of what he's going to talk about in the Sermon on the Mount. The very first declaration that Jesus makes when he starts preaching in Matthew is the phrase, I'm sorry, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near or at hand. Now we talked about what that means, that, that, that Jesus is saying that heaven is all around us if we have eyes to see it, but often the things that we do point us away from it. That the things that we call sin may help, cause us to miss the mark of what Jesus intends for us, and so his declaration is, turn away from that. To repent means to turn, to turn from where you were going towards something different. And so it's a, it's a message of mercy and grace and hope. Hey, you're missing the mark, and so turn and head back towards it. Jesus begins his entire preaching career that way. He goes on then to explain that we all have value in him. That our value is secure and does not change in Christ, which is incredibly important for our conversation today. He, moved, he then begins the message that we've been in for the past five weeks, the Sermon on the Mount. He opens the Sermon on the Mount with a series of blessings, inviting people from all kinds of different backgrounds, saying, God is with you. If you're poor in spirit, if you're longing for God, God's with you already. If you feel persecuted, God's with you. If you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, God's with you. It's a declaration to each and every person that comes around him that God desires to be close to them. And so last week, we began to flesh out what that means. We talked about how there are things that help us experience the kingdom all around us constantly. And that's what he's calling us to. There are certain things that are incompatible, incompatible with that kingdom life, and he calls us away from those which leads us to today. 
with an issue that's, that's not simple. See, some of the other things that Jesus puts out are a little easier for us to understand. They don't work, they're not as painful as the others, right? Oaths, when we talk about oaths, we can, we can tackle that easier because we can work to live an honest life. It's only up to me. Or whether it's forgiveness, right? I can, I can work to try to not hate as far as it's up to me. Or adultery, I can work to control my lust. But marriage is different because it's two people, and I can do my part, sure, but what if the other person doesn't do theirs? What if they're abusive or neglectful? Right? We have a whole series of what ifs, and it's two people in the same space. It forces us to ask questions. How do I follow Jesus if my marriage is a mess? And see, it's these questions that are the very reason we're going to tackle this topic today. Because they're really good questions with really serious real-world implications. And honestly, we have to admit right out of the gate, the church has not always been very good at helping people through this. My guess is it wouldn't take long for us to find a whole bunch of stories of people who have found the church to be the worst place for them to go when they're wrestling through marriage issues, yeah? Most of you probably know somebody that's had that problem. And there's a couple reasons for that. First, it's because the church has made some blanket statements in the past. Sometimes it's straight quotes of Scripture, like Malachi 2.16. We just simply like to throw that one out, which says, God hates divorce. Which, is, that statement, it's true, but our lack of understanding of why, or wrestling with what it means with any depth or nuance, has caused a whole lot of pain. We love to say, well, the Bible says it, so it's simple. And we'll see as we go through this message that that's not true necessarily. It's one way we've handled it in the church, and as a result, we've, we've hurt people in that way. But it's not the only way. Because sometimes we go in the opposite direction too, don't we? We say, well, it's, it's complex and it's sticky, so we'll just not talk about it altogether. It's too hard to figure out in the right way, so we're going to ignore it altogether. And so, as a result, people who are wrestling with their marriage, who are hurting, feel uncared for in the midst of their pain. They don't feel like they have anyone to talk to, which causes a whole new set of issues. And as a result, we have people in the church who either find it to be irrelevant when it comes to issues of their marriage, or completely unsafe, or at worst, destructive. And as a result, one of the most complex and important relationships in our lives avoids the church altogether because of either shame or indifference. Scott McConnell actually says it this way. He's the vice president of Lifeway Research. He says, As the churches are dogmatic and not realistic about relationships, and those who have trouble in their marriage are never going to tell anybody, and that should be a wake-up call to the church, he says. I think that speaks very loudly into what we're supposed to be doing here. I, I would argue we gather here each week. We commit to doing this faith life together to do precisely, uh, sorry, we, we gather together to precisely to navigate through these hard, complex things in our lives, to support each other as we try our best to figure out what the narrow way looks like. Affirming the value that Jesus has declared in each of us while also working to remove those things that are holding us back. See, if the church becomes a place of shame 
or of indifference, if we refuse to engage in hard things like this, I, I'm going to be as bold as to say, then we're doing it wrong. Then why are we even here together? So what does Jesus have to say about divorce? Now, whether this has affected you personally or whether you know somebody that it's affected, it's important for all of us to understand so we can help people take steps towards Jesus. Well, the first thing he says is in Matthew 5, verse 31. It says, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her a victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. You see, this issue isn't at all, at all new to our culture. It's actually a debate that's been raising, that was raging in Jesus' time, too. Uh, it was actually a really, really serious issue in Jesus' day with two major ways of thinking about it. There were, there were two important rabbis who lived about 40 years before Jesus. Uh, one was named Rabbi Shammai, and the other was named Rabbi Hillel. Each of them had a set of interpretations of Scripture. They actually were known as their yokes. So when Jesus talks about my yoke is light, um, he's talking about that, a series of belief systems comparable to these two guys. Actually, these two, these two trains of thought affect Scripture in a lot of ways because almost, all, almost every time the Pharisees come to Jesus to test him, which happens often as you read through the New Testament, they, say they test him with different things. What they're asking him is, do you agree with Rabbi Shammai or Hillel? Um, it's a, they, they come to the, from the debate between those two. Like, for instance, when they say, should we pay taxes to Rome, what do you believe? That was a debate between those two rabbis. Well, divorce was a big part of this debate, too. It's actually what presses the question we see when Jesus readdresses divorce in Matthew 19. Matthew 19.1 says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed them there, and he healed them. Some Pharisees came to test him. That's, we see that again. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, this passage is loaded with Shammai and, 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 and Hillel undertones. And I'm going to work through this part quickly because it's not the biggest point I want to make, but I do think it's important to the conversation. See, when we get, into the converse, <clears throat> we get into this conversation with this question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? It's what they were trying to test Jesus with. Because 50 years prior, before these two rabbis, the answer would have been obviously no. But... In the Jewish mind, there would have been only four reasons uh, that, that were acceptable as biblical grounds for divorce. The first three we find in Exodus 21, 10 through 11. Now, this is a weird section because it's actually about how God commands Israel to protect their slaves, um, which is obviously tricky, right? Um, you might, there's some of you here that probably bristle at that a little bit, and I get why, um, but actually what God is doing when he talks about slaves in the Old Testament is actually radically progressive for that culture, uh, which I would love to break down for you all right now, but I can't because it would get us too deep in the weeds. And, but if you do want to talk about that, I know that can be a stumbling block for some people. Let's go grab coffee and we'll talk through Old Testament law in that way. But relative to divorce, this is what it says. And so the law said, if you take a female slave as your wife, then you find another wife, uh, you cannot send the first wife away empty-handed. 
If he marries another woman, he must deprive the first one, he must, or he must not deprive the first one of food, clothing, and marital rights. If he does not provide her with these things, she should go free without any payment of money. So the way the understanding went is that everyone has the right to three things in marriage, food, clothing, and marital rights. If those aren't present in a marriage, it would provide grounds for divorce in the Old Testament. Now, the first two are easy, and we're not even going to really talk about them. Food and clothing make sense to all of us, right? You need those things to survive. The third one's a little bit trickier um, because my guess is when you hear the word marital right, you probably just think sex, right? And that's part of it, but it's, but it's bigger than that. So you, <clears throat> see, marital rights or, or marital sexuality is primarily related in this particular context to having children. Now, our culture has very much separated those two things from each other, but in the Jewish culture, they were inseparable. And it makes a huge difference in how we understand this passage. Essentially, what it's saying is you can't deprive your spouse from the option of having children. Why? Well, in this particular culture, who took care of you when you were old? Your kids did, right? There's no Medicare. There's no nursing homes. If you get old and you don't have children, and your husband's died, or wife is dead, you're stuck, right? So to have children is a really, really important thing. Food and clothing are about meeting your needs now. Having children are meeting, is about meeting your needs later, when you're older. And so that's what it's talking about there. So those were the first three grounds. But remember, there were four. The fourth comes from Deuteronomy 24 which says, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and writes her a certificate of divorce and gives it to her and sends her from his house. Now, this is the passage that drove the debate of Jesus' day. You see, both rabbis agreed on the first three, the part from Exodus, but they disagreed on Deuteronomy 24 and how to interpret it. They disagreed on how to interpret two Hebrew words, eret devar, as the two words that they, didn't, they disagreed on. Translated in English is something indecent or an indecent matter. But what does that mean? Well, it comes down to whether those are two separate things or one single thing. See, Rabbi Shammai said what that means is any matter of indecency. In other, in other words, adultery, cheating. If your spouse cheats on you. If your spouse commits adultery in that way, it's grounds for divorce. He, he combines both words, and indecent matter is the same thing in English as adultery. Hallel, on the other hand, had a different idea. He actually said, no, those are two different things. Indecency is one thing, so adultery. And then he went as far as to say, or any other matter, literally anything, and actually only for the male's perspective. It was very chauvinist, his, his idea was. The Mishnah says it this way, the school of Shammai said a man should not divorce his wife unless he found her in a matter of indecency. As he said, he finds her in an indecent matter, manner or adultery. And the school of Hillel said, even if she spoiled his dish, since it says, for he finds her in an indecent matter. That's tough, right? She messes up dinner and you can kick her out, Hillel said. It feels pretty gross, doesn't it? But you can see where the question given to Jesus is coming from. Whose side are you on? Are you on, Shema, uh, on Shemaiah's side or Hillel's side? Essentially, they're asking. They ask, can a man divorce his wife for any and every reason? 
Jesus responds this way. Haven't you read, he replied, that in the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. It's easy to miss, but what Jesus does here is amazing. Because what he does is he actually changes the way the question's being asked. He brings everyone back to what marriage is and why it matters. He reminds them that marriage is the binding of two people. They remain individuals, but also in another way, they're one. They're deeply connected. They're two people essentially sharing one body. The way he does it is brilliant, too, because the Hebrew word here is the word achad, which if you're going to say it right, you need to get a good in there, right? Which is a word that's actually central to a Jewish person's understanding of the world. Because Jewish people would pray a prayer every day known as the Shema. Maybe you've heard of it before. Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Essentially means, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That final phrase is, the Lord is Echad. See, marriage, they understood, when done right, is like the picture of what God is like. See, the world is a dark place. It can break your heart, but when two people come together in mutual love, in humility, choosing one and the other person over, themse- over themselves, that is what God is like. That's echad. And that's, where, that's what Jesus brings it back to. Now, before we bring this thing home, I want to make sure that we, we don't miss exactly what he's doing here. The Pharisees have come to Jesus to have them settle their dispute on the rules. Is it Shammai or is it Hillel? Which rule is right? And instead, he said the important thing to understand here is why marriage exists at all. That's where he takes it first. It's only after they keep pressing him on the rules that he adds some clarity. But the order of operations here matters a lot. See, the why is so much more important than the what in this case. Because I want to remind you again, and I'm going to sound like a broken record, especially in this particular series, but how we understand sin here is critical to how we understand Jesus. And it's the area that so many of us in the church get wrong. Why does Jesus tell us to do certain things and to not do others? Because there is a best way to live, there's a heavenly way, and there are other things that can hurt us. To sin does damage to you and to someone else, and Jesus wants to guide you away from that kind of hurt. Whenever we're talking about sin, we have to understand it that way, because if it becomes about a value thing, then we care more about the what than the why. We we do exactly what the Pharisees were trying to do. Where is the line and how do I get as close to it as I can? And we miss the important part behind it in the first place. So often in our lives, we make sin about value. If you do these things, either God will care about you less, 
or you, you're standing inside of this body or something like that is diminished. That is not what sin is about, and it can't be, and it's what's caused so much pain in the church for so long. We've seen it in our previous weeks that God says over and over again at the beginning of Matthew that your value in God's eyes does not change. And at the same time, sin matters because if it's left unchecked, can bring you to a kind of hell on earth. We've all following with that. So critically important as we move forward in this particular space. With that understanding, we can begin to pull all of these threads back together. See, I believe one of, the, one of the reasons the church has done such a terrible job of discussing divorce is because like the Pharisees, we've got completely caught up in the wrong understanding of sin. What can I do and still be valuable in God's eyes? Where's the line and how do I get to as, clo- as close to it as I can get without going over? Which is just not helpful. Phrases like, what are the biblical grounds for divorce, mess up the entire conversation. It's what creates the two viewpoints we talked about at the beginning. They either force us into a place of shame or to a place of avoidance. What Jesus does is he shifts the entire conversation back to where it should be, on the relationship itself. Marriage, Jesus says, has the potential to be one of the most beautiful things on the planet. A little literal mirroring of the Godhead. It's two people coming together under God to function as one unit, which has the potential for an unimaginable amount of good. A place for unconditional love, a place for support, a, place, a good place to raise children, and we could go on and on and on. Paul even goes on to describe it later on in the scriptures as the two becoming one flesh as a mystery that he can't even explain. The potential of marriage to produce good in the world is astronomical, which then helps us understand phrases like God saying, I hate divorce. Because when we understand that what marriage is supposed to be, what it could be, it absolutely then breaks our heart when it doesn't go that way. So we all hate divorce in that context, right? No one wants to see something that could have been beautiful break down. And so we all mourn it. Doesn't mean that God loves divorced people any less. That's absurd. It does mean that he's sad to see the break, and I think we are too, right? I think all of us are. But it goes further than that too. An analogy that's been really helpful for me in wrapping my mind around this whole thing is is actually imagining a literal picture of what Jesus is saying and two become one flesh. When we get married... We're bound to each other like we have the same body. So then, to cut off any piece of that body causes damage. It hurts, right? I'll share a story with you, because I think this will help us wrap our minds around it. When I was in seminary, I worked at Starbucks. I was a barista. I slung coffee. I actually liked it. It's a nice place to be. And I had an opportunity to talk with a lot of my coworkers. I was working with a young woman. Who is, who is great in a lot of ways. Um, and she was married, and, uh, and her husband was, a, was, was words I can't say in church. He was, all, he was awful, right? It's really, really bad. He, uh, he did, he, he, as the more I got to know her, it became evident uh, the impact he was having on her life. 
Um, he, was, he was, at the very least, emotionally abusive. I, I have guesses that it might have been physical too, but I, I don't have any proof on that, so I can't say that. But it was very clearly emotionally abusive. He had cheated on her multiple times. He insulted her and demeaned her. Actually, as, you, as I watched her, as I got to know her more, you could physically see her spirit being crushed, which I know is an abstract idea, but I think there's some of you out there that probably know exactly what I'm talking about. And if you do, I'm sorry, that hurts a lot, right? When it came to grounds for divorce, she had them all. The relationship was destroying her, was destroying her self-worth, her confidence, her emotional and physical health. And so she, actually, she decided to move forward with a divorce. And honestly, probably was the right decision for her, but you know what? It also crushed her. It was incredibly painful to her. Granted, it probably saved her life, uh, or at least the possibility of a thriving one, and yet it was excruciatingly painful for her. Some of, there's some of you out there that probably can relate to that too. And if you can, then again, my heart breaks for you as well. See, sometimes there are parts of our body that are slowly killing us. If my arm becomes severely infected and that infection is slowly spreading to the rest of my body, sometimes the only way to save my life is to cut off my arm. But what else does that do? It leaves me without an arm, right? And that hurts. It affects me deeply. And I think divorce is like that. Does that make sense? Why does God hate divorce? Because it hurts. It hurts in a way other things don't. Now perhaps we're beginning to see why the letter of the law conversation is not helpful here. Because in this case, and honestly in many cases when we're talking about sin, we're dealing with complex human relationships in a broken, messed up world. And so the phrases like the Bible clearly says often can not only be not helpful and many times can be really, really destructive. Friends, when it comes to complex social issues, often the Bible isn't clear in the way that we mean when we say that phrase. And honestly, if we slow down, we all know that. It's why Jesus speaks in parables. Pharisees come to him and ask what they think is a simple question, who's my neighbor? How does Jesus respond? We tell you a story about a guy who got mugged. You're like, what? What does that have to do with anything? He goes, yeah, no, wrestle with it for a little bit. What does mercy look like? Let me tell you about a story about a guy who owed some, a king some money. What? See, we even see it in the Old Testament when God has an opportunity to name his people. I've mentioned this before from up here. Jacob is wrestling with an angel, and God gets to pick the name of his nation forever. He changes Jacob's name to Israel, which literally means to wrestle with God. He says, the defining characteristic of my people is going to be that they wrestle with me, that we're going to work through all of these really difficult things always. Scripture itself repeatedly over and over and over again says, meditate on it day and night. Why? Because it's easy? No, precisely because it's not. Because it's super difficult to understand how we apply these heavenly principles into a world that so often pushes directly against them. What, what we can take from a passage on divorce 
is that it's messy and it's complicated. Jesus tells us that divorce is not what any of us wants when we get married, and we know that. He tells us divorce hurts, so don't enter into it lightly. In other words, work at it. Work hard at marriage. See a counselor, see three, whatever it takes. Do everything you can to make this complex relationship work. I actually will argue it's why Jesus speaks directly against Hillel in this case. He doesn't always do that, but he does here. He says marriage at its core is too important to throw away for any reason, particularly not making a dinner dish right. It actually undermines the entire thing. It undermines the why. Leaving a marriage should never be taken lightly. It should be one of the most serious decisions anyone ever makes. And at the same time, there are times when a toxic relationship is killing the other person. And some of those examples are given in Scripture. Either basic human needs are not being met or adultery. And in those places, because we live in a fallen world, maybe a divorce saves a life. But Jesus is clear, it'll still hurt. And anybody who's been through one knows that, right? Anybody who's observed one knows that. Now, I want to be really clear as well. Sometimes in the analogy, then, with the arm part, especially, hey, we don't have an arm, we can often think of ourselves then as, as maimed or something like that. I, I, I don't want the analogy to be pulled out to that far. I just want to talk about it in the sense of it hurting. There always is redemption, though. God is always calling us back to himself, and you can find a really beautiful full life post that. It doesn't change the fact that the pain is still there, but I also do not want to remove the fact that Jesus often provides a redemptive path. Both of those things play with each other here. Where we need to wrestle, though, is the tricky middle. We're still left with the question, what if I'm in a marriage that feels like it's killing me but doesn't meet the four criteria we talked about today? What do I do then? And that's the gray area we've been talking about here. That's where the hardest wrestling comes in. Because the fact of the matter is, too many of us in today's culture don't wrestle hard enough in that space. It's true. That's why the numbers are so high. Let's just be honest about that. We should be wrestling with it more. We should do, put all of our energy into doing whatever we can to maintain that relationship. That being said, others of us never stop wrestling while they actually are dying. Now, I wish I could say there, this is what the Bible clearly says about that situation, but it doesn't, and it wasn't meant to. And so that's where we need to wrestle together. It's where we need each other. Now, I've said it before from, from ups on stage here, but Jen and I have been through marriage counseling twice in our marriage. It's the greatest thing we ever did, and the only reason I went is because she's better than me. She, she brought me in kicking and screaming the first time. I'm like, we got this thing. We can fix it. And then we sat with a counselor. I'm like, oh, we didn't have this thing. I'm glad we got you, <laughs> right? If you're in that space, I want to encourage you to do that. The, the most recent time we, went, we, we sat with a counselor was only a few months ago during the pandemic where we realized we're running into the same wall over and over and over again, and somebody can help us fix that. And we're way better because of it. 
If you're in that space today, you feel free to come talk to me about it. Even better, talk to Jen. She's not here now. We had a weekend in Muskegon, and there she's still there with the kids. It was great. Uh, but she would be happy to talk to you about that as well. That's where we need each other. A place where we can share our experiences with either how we found a way out or, or, or even sometimes how painful it was to work through certain things. There's some of you here who are divorced and you know the pain and hardship of what that was like. I want to let you know you are so critical to this conversation to help people understand how we work through this thing together. As it is with all things that are sin, all things that miss the mark of the flourishing that we're aiming at, we gather in this space to wrestle through those difficult things. So often there aren't easy, clear answers to these discussions, and that's why we have to study Scripture together. That's why we wrestle with it together. That's why we encourage each other and support each other as we try to figure out what God is calling us to. Whether it be divorce or adultery or oaths or revenge or whatever it may be, let's meditate on Scripture continually so that we can understand the kind of life that God's calling us to, the why of what he's called us to, so that we can work together to find that tricky, narrow road that leads to life. My hope is, and I, I, my hope is I didn't screw up anything too badly today so that you're leaving hurt. My hope is that I've encouraged you in some way to invite others into our space as we wrestle through things so that we can have hard conversations together about anything so we can wrestle to find, to find the path of Jesus together. And that we can work hard to not either ignore it or shame people who are in the midst of it. That, we can, that the church can be the place where we come with our junk so we can work together towards the best kind of life. Will you pray with me? Father God, we just first want to start by recognizing that so often we've We've made statements from Scripture that have hurt people. That a, a lack of wrestling or understanding has, has caused people a lot of pain. God, forgive us for that. God, may each of us be constant students of your word, constantly wrestling with what it means to follow you through the difficult areas of our lives. God, we apologize that the church hasn't always been a place where people can come when they're hurting. That so often it's a place of shame or rejection rather than love, acceptance, and a willingness to wrestle together. Give us the ability, the wisdom, the courage to be able to do those things. And God, finally, I want to close with just praying for, for the marriages in this church, wherever they may be. For the ones that are in a wonderful place, may, they, that, may that wonder continue to abound. For those who are struggling, who are hurting, who are wrestling, may you bring people into their lives to help them find the way out. Not out of the marriage, out of the difficulty that they're in. God, for those who've already seen a marriage break, Lord, I pray that your spirit rest over them in a big way to give them a peace that transcends all understanding. Let them know that they are loved deeply by you and by us. God, may you always be guiding us through the difficult and complex parts of our lives in which 
even though the kingdom is all around us, the weeds and the brokenness still exists. Amen.